Please turn with me now to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Not a hair of your head shall be lost, by your patience possess your souls." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemies, armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days There will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that this world had a beginning, you brought it into being. And this world has an end. You shall bring it to an end and create a new heavens and a new earth. 
These things and these times are in your hands. And Lord, many of, of the details and the timing are not given to us. But Lord, you give us what we need to know. And Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would meditate on these things. How we pray that we would understand what this passage, this chapter is teaching us. What you are teaching us even this day concerning the return of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there are any windows out there left to open, please. They're all open. open. Well, we carry on in this chapter, chapter 21, in what is called the mini-apocalypse, so-called because its theme is the end times, like the big apocalypse uh, revelation. Or at least it's in part dealing with the end times, because we cannot forget the context in verse 5. Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So, again, the disciples are talking about timing, and they're talking about signs. When will these things be, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? But the thing that they're concerned about, the immediate context, is the temple itself. And Jesus' answer reflects this. But what they didn't understand was that the destruction of the temple before them and the destruction of the world were actually two different events separated by many, many long years. Now let me say, and I want to take the time to explain to you that this is a common feature of biblical prophecy, that in almost every occasion there is both a final fulfillment, yes, at the end, but also an intermediate fulfillment in history, whereby an aspect of the judgment, an aspect of the prophecy is coming to fulfillment uh, at a certain point before the final fulfillment at the end. For example, we've already seen one in Luke chapter 4. Do you remember? The Lord Jesus is in his hometown. He reads from the prophet Isaiah. Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. You set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And as I mentioned, he was reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 61 to be exact. And it is word for word in verse 1. Proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. It goes on in the other half of that same verse. And the day of vengeance of our God. The Lord Jesus stopped speaking halfway through that verse and sat down and said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now to those who read that prophecy beforehand, it might well have seemed to them to be at one time when actually these things were separated by two millennia at the very least. Well, why is this? 
Why can these two things be united and yet happen at different times? Well, for one thing, they are united theologically. The salvation of God's people is also the judgment of the wicked. It has to be that way. It's of a peace. You can't save people without also bringing judgment upon their enemies. It works that way. And the effect of that, so it's of a peace, even though it may be disconnected in time. Keep that, that in your mind, by the way. Sometimes things that are separated in time are united in the mind of God theologically. And that's something that we should just be familiar with and, and comfortable with. But the effect of this, that one part of this happens now and, and the rest of it happens later, is that it is a foretaste of what is to come. It is the first fruits, to use a biblical term, it is a first fruits of the harvest. Okay? So uh, when we see the, the bud coming to the, the wheat, when we, the first actual head of wheat and grain appears, we know it is merely a matter of time until the rest of it. Because there is one harvest. It's united organically, this one harvest. Even though the beginning and the end of it are separated in time. So it is, friends, with the return of Christ. And everything that is related to it, they are of a peace. The effect of this foretaste is that in the mercy of God, it serves as a warning for those who should take warning. Let me tell you, Judgment Day has already come in the case of Jerusalem. All right? We don't have to wonder what Judgment Day is going to be like. We don't have to harbor in our hearts that maybe... Maybe the Lord really is like Santa Claus, like St. Nicholas, and he's just going to come with presents even for the most wicked and spiteful of his enemies. We have seen his, him dealing with his own people in Jerusalem in AD 70, and it is a fearsome thing. We have a warning because of what has already happened. And beloved, we also have a wonderful reason to take great expectation in knowing the certainty of our redemption. These things are of one piece. He said Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and it was. He also said that he's coming to redeem and to save his people and to bring us into his presence forever, to, to swim in a sea of love, as Edwards says, to be in perfect joy forever, and that also will happen. These things... For also for our encouragement. We get a foretaste to see whether God does what he says he's going to do. And he does. It may be a dire warning to the sinner, and it ought to be. But it is also a blessed, wonderful assurance to the saint. And the words in verse 28 apply very much to us. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Well, that is our title this morning, Lift Up Your Heads, these three points. The first fruits. Secondly, fearful expectation. Thirdly, joyful expectation. The first fruits, fearful expectation, joyful expectation. Well, the first fruits. Read in verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Even here, we have a certain sign 
and fulfillment. Now, we have to know that these events actually happened. There was a siege. The general, who later became the Emperor Titus, began it a few days before Passover in AD 70. Actually, as, I, uh, as you can guess, uh, pretty much exact same time of the year that Jesus was then speaking. There was a siege of Jerusalem. In fact, every aspect of what has been said also came to be. And the fulfillment even of this first part that I mentioned, the fulfillment of there being a siege around Jerusalem, is a warning. The Lord had designed it to be a warning so that even when that part of the event was happening, that everyone would see it and take appropriate action. Verse 21, And let those then, when you see that siege, let those who are in Judea, the the surrounding area around Jerusalem, Flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, the people there. And let not those who are in the country enter into her, meaning Jerusalem. You see that siege happening. The end is near for Jerusalem. If you're, you're there, if you can get out, get out. If you're around, don't get in. And get as far away as, as possible. Flee to the mountains. Verse 22, for those, these are the days of vengeance. And all things which are written may be fulfilled. You see, God is very, very interested in and concerned with and desirous that he would fulfill his word. And my friends, please understand that. We encounter people all the time whose word just doesn't mean much. Whose word is spoken and yet it falls to the ground and nothing happens. And maybe, maybe in the rulers of this world there are threats sometimes made. Better not do this or we'll do the other. And line after line is crossed and nothing ever happens and they carry on the way they were. That is not the case with our God. He will fulfill his word in every last detail. And one way that we have to understand what happened in A.D. 70, what what the awful and terrible things that happened To Jerusalem, we have to understand it as a fulfilling of all things that were prophesied concerning her. And for that, we have to look back all the way, not just in in this prophecy, not just in the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets of all the dire warnings that are given, but way back in the Pentateuch, way back in Deuteronomy, that's spoken of the curses that are going to be leveled upon the people should they depart from God. Should they repudiate his covenant promises? And should they refuse his Messiah that he was sending? All these things were going to be fulfilled. It says even in verse 23, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. So reference probably to multiple things, but the most obvious is simply the difficulty in in fleeing at this point. Uh, The the limited mobility of of mothers in such a situation, of expectant mothers or nursing mothers, that it will be hard for them. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all nations. And let me say again, that is precisely what happened. God in his providence, you know, Scripture ends... Um, uh, slightly in the future of the destruction of, of Jerusalem, but God in his particular providence doesn't have anything but prophecy 
doesn't speak very directly of the actual destruction of Jerusalem, but rather he ends up sending uh, this, uh, this Jewish historian, Josephus, who is actually employed by the Romans to be a negotiator with, with the people. And so he has a very detailed description of exactly what happened uh, in A.D. 70. By the way, they didn't uh, listen to him. They actually shot an arrow at him. I believe he was wounded uh, by the, the people in Jerusalem as he was trying to negotiate with him. Well, he describes that the edge of the sword describes precisely what happened. We know that there was a fire, but the bulk of what happened was surely that the, the Roman legions that entered Jerusalem uh, killed lots and lots of people, so much so that there were rivers of blood flowing from places in Jerusalem. That happened. And were there captives? Yes. The majority died by the sword, but by Josephus's count, there, was, there were 100,000 led away captives, some indeed to be, uh, be part of the celebrations as they were forced to be captives, forced to reenact their own defeat uh, in the triumph that was to play out later. This is what was prophesied. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led away captive, and that is precisely what happened. God's word in every detail was fulfilled. And then it goes on. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now this is speaking, of course, of something that had a fulfillment and then of a situation, a steady state that carries on further from that, which is a time of the Gentiles. Now it is, of course, very interesting to us and every student of prophecy and that in recent history there is a Jewish state in Israel. Yet of all the, the, the things that we take from it, or we might, we might or might not take from it, we have to keep in mind that Jerusalem itself is still half-occupied by Muslims. And so, in effect, it is still being trampled underfoot by Gentiles, even though there is a Jewish state there. And mainly, if we could put this end of the time of the, the Gentiles, we put that together with the prophecy in Romans chapter 11, and we say we haven't seen a great number of Jews come to faith. And so between those two things, we say, more than likely, the time of the Gentiles carries on, and the end is not yet. Those things were fulfilled in AD 70, and 10 years passed, 20 years passed, 100 years passed, 1,000 years passed, and we remain this time of the Gentiles. Well, what do we make of this? I'm going to speak more in the application, but let me say that this is the flood. This A.D. 70, which is such a curiosity to us, we wonder how it is that the the end could come in some way and and not the rest of it, how it is that the the judgment prophecies could be fulfilled in some ways and not the other. My friends, this was the flood. This was Sodom and Gomorrah for the church age. This was a foretaste of the wrath and judgment of God while there is yet time for the rest of us to take notice. We can choose to ignore the flood if we want. It's amazing to me that we go to the the Grand Canyon and we see this obvious monument of the wrath of God and people instead make up stories of how this tiny little river just taken bazillions of years, uh, you know, affected this, this great destruction. They want to ignore the fact of the sudden and terrible judgment of God upon the entire world. Or we can, we can ignore, if we want, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Well, we don't have contemporary accounts outside of the scripture that explain exactly what happened. And so we can try to ignore that it happened in the distant past. But friends, Jerusalem is, is recent history. Uh, we, there, no one questions what happened there. We have multiple testimonies of all kinds of reliable witnesses. If you don't want to believe in scripture, which is the ultimate reliable witness and everything else is flawed. But we have that described And it is in our time, the church age. This is a warning, a foretaste of what is to come. All of those things which had been prophesied and promised were fulfilled on that people at that time. Well, that was the first fruits. But it's not the end. Secondly, let us talk of the fearful expectation that yet remains. In verse 25, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars and on the earth, the stress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven will be shaken. We have already seen in the first part of this that throughout all the church age, there will be various things which do not tell us anything definite about the end of the world. Wars and rumors of wars, various things happening in the heavens, various natural disasters. But it seems, putting this together with Revelation and all the rest of it, it seems that these things probably intensify towards the end. And the net effect of it in men's hearts, obviously unsaved men's hearts, right? Because there's been this this fear, is that men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. Now, to some extent, that has always been the case. As I mentioned, every time there's a comet, every time there's an eclipse, every time that there's some great destruction or several of these things happen together, there is fear that something is going to happen. Never forget this. People know that there is a God. Do you know that? They may say that they don't believe in God. Deep down in their hearts, everyone knows that there is a God. In fact, they know these three things. They know there's a God. They know that he has a law that they should keep. The moral law is written in the hearts of men, even if they've not received the word of God. And that thirdly, there is a judgment day coming. They will be held account for these things. They know those three things and therefore... Like a guilty man, when they they hear a siren of of a police car, jumpy and fearful, even if that police car is going the other direction, so it is with the people of this world. When any little trouble comes, when signs happen in the heavens, they are reminded that the end is going to come and that they will be held accountable for their sin. They're going to be filled with fear. Far worse than that. These are just the, the things that are leading up into the end. And the, the, the worst nightmare happens. The very worst thing that, that in the unsaved sinner's mind that could ever happen finally does happen. You know what that terrible event is? It's not the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not signs in the heavens. Or even the destruction. The worst and most fearful thing imaginable finally happens in verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This time not in the 
the state of humiliation. There he is before them. There they can contradict him. There they can disbelieve him at will. They can strike him, spit upon him, nail him to a cross. There in the state of humiliation, looking no different than any other man. But he will come again in the clouds of glory, and he will come in great glory. No veiling of who he is then. And my friends, that glory, that manifestation of the the holiness of God will be the most dreadful sight imaginable to the wicked. We have this scene described for us in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. What are they afraid of? A terrible dragon is coming. And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Afraid of a lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They're afraid of this lamb who has on his face, that's the thing they're particularly concerned about. It's not, not his feet, not his body, it's his face. And what is on his face is a revelation of the righteous wrath of God upon them. And this fills them with dread and fear. They are not able to stand. This is the fearful expectation of things that are coming. Do you know, I, I wonder why it is that those who do not experience a foretaste of these things now, those who know what it is like when there is some scare in world events, some scare in the the natural disasters that come upon us thick and fast, or some health scare that happens to them, some brush with the law, who knows what it is. I wonder why these things then do not bring them to their knees, bring them to kiss the sun instead of continuing to be his enemy. If these things bring you a fearful expectation, then my my word to you, my advice is to get right with this Lamb of God before he comes in his day of wrath and vengeance. That's the kind of expectation that happens with the wicked. And I hope they put it to good use. But thirdly, what about God's people? Well, there's no fearful expectation. Rather, there is a joyful expectation or anticipation In verse 28, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. There's an absolute polar opposite of these things. They're not mixed. It's not a a mixture of, of, of dread for the Christian believer. It's not a dread at one moment and then... And then delight at the next. It's, it's unmixed because these things are absolute at polar opposites. I mentioned 2 Corinthians 2.16. Uh, Paul is speaking of why it is that it's so hard to be a Christian. Why particularly it's so hard to be, a, in his case, an apostle uh, declaring the word of God, speaking to people in the name of God. And he says this, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. 
and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? That's the polarity. That's the dichotomy. It's not a false dichotomy. It's a real one. We were discussing in logic class, false dichotomies. No, it's a real dichotomy this time. Because as I said, everyone knows there's a God. Everyone knows that there's a law. Everyone knows that there's going to be a judgment. And when we're around them, that smell, that odor, that aroma fills the air. And they're reminded of these three things they can't stand. They, they wish we'd go away. But on the other hand, to God's people, we were a reminder of three very blessed things, right? There is a God. There is a Savior, indeed. This gospel message is true that we believe in. There is a God. There is salvation in Christ. And Christ is returning to bless us, to bring us into everlasting joy and blessedness in eternity. These things are true. And every time we're around God's people, every time that we're in this place together, we are reminded of these things. It's a savor of life to life. We're reminded of the reality and the certainty of all this. Now, what about the timing? What is he trying to say about this? He is giving the impression, isn't he, that somehow seeing some things will increase our anticipation. Somehow aspects of this will make us aware that things are now a little bit closer than what they used to be. Yet, on the other hand, we just said that no one knows the day or the hour. We, we just said there are going to be those who say that the time is coming near. Don't listen to them. Which one is it? There is a bit of a tension here, isn't there? Well, he's speaking to them a parable. And the parable, I think, is useful. Verse 29. Look at the fig trees and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourself that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. So, very simple. Now, we are on the other side of things in the actual course of time. In fact, as the trees are Losing their leaves, we know that winter is near. But on the, uh, soon enough, soon enough, we'll come to February and March. And in those times, we'll begin to see things with buds. First, we'll see snowdrops coming out of the ground. And why are we happy about seeing snowdrops coming out of the ground? It's still freezing. It might even still be snowing at that point. It's still going to be miserable. What then is the, the, the joy or what then is the usefulness of seeing those snowdrops and other things that, that soon enough we, we come to see blossom? It's not for their own sake. It's that we know the sequence. We know that seeing that happen means that summer is a lot closer than what it used to be. Now, we don't know the exact moment in which the, the temperature is going to hit a nice... 22, 23 degrees. We don't know when that's going to happen. Exactly. But we know this. And our, our step is a little bit lighter. We're a little bit more uh, joyful in all these things because we know it's closer now than what it was. There is a milestone that we are passing. We know it's coming closer. That's what Jesus is speaking about here. There will never come a time up until that very moment when he appears on the clouds of glory that we know exactly when he will come. No man knows that day and hour. 
But there will be milestones that are passed along the way. There will be enough for God's people to know that the time is closer now than what it was. And we know, don't we, that every day is a day's, every day's march is a day closer to the end of the march as we come to Christ in eternity. And friends, when we see these things, see the wicked see these things, and they're afraid. Every time they see a natural disaster, they are afraid because they know one day there will be a big natural disaster, a big one. And they will be brought to account for their sin and their rebellion, their intractable, persistent rebellion against the living God. And they hate it. They don't like to be reminded of these things. Friends, every time we see a natural disaster... We also should be reminded of the great, big, natural disaster that is coming. The means by which we will be with our Lord forever. The destruction of this current cursed world and the bringing in of a new and better world. The new heavens and the new earth. Every time that there are wars and rumors and wars, and there are, friends, there are wars and rumors of wars. We are reminded of the day when the final battle is completed, and we enjoy the fruits of victory forever. And all these things, we know these things are coming closer. Now the confession says, confession 33.3, it's easy to remember. What do we know about the timing of the end? According to our Westminster Confession, three threes in a row, Westminster 33.3. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. That is the orthodox position on it. The certainty of it, the continual anticipation of it, are continual. By the way, do you understand that if we did know that day or the hour, we would stop saying, come Lord Jesus Christ, until about a month beforehand? That's not to our benefit. That's not to the glory of God. The very fact that we don't know the exact day, but rather that step by step we are given little foretaste and milestones along the way, that very fact only increases our certainty, only increases our anticipation and our prayers to God that it would come soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, is a prayer of God's people, just like it is the martyrs in heaven who say, How long, O Lord? This is the joyful anticipation and expectation God would wish us to have. Now, the applications are only two And they are no surprise. You have guessed them by now. The first for the sinner, for those who are not Christians, is to take warning. Friend, God has shown you what he's going to do. You say, surely God will let me slide. Look, that is not, I'm not just imputing that to you, to the theoretical uh, unbeliever there, whether here physically or perhaps listening on the Internet. That's not a theory, Every time anybody takes a poll as to what people believe, you reveal that deep down in your heart you really think that the Lord is going to let you slide on Judgment Day, or so you say. That is, the, the expectation contrary to the certain knowledge that God has implanted in your, your heart, that you are actually guilty and God will judge you and send you to hell eternally, you have 
overlaid that with a hopeful construct in which, but he's too kind, too merciful, too forgiving to let that happen. He is kind. He is merciful. And he is most forgiving now in the day of mercy that he extends to everyone. That's the good news. But on that day when judgment comes, there is not a shred of mercy to be found. Absolutely none. Indeed, that's one of the notable aspects of the destruction of Jerusalem, just how merciless the whole affair was. It was dreadful in the extreme. And this is a foretaste, but a foretaste of the destruction and judgment that is yet to come on all those who yet oppose him, all those who yet sin against him, all those who refuse to bow the knee before Christ, even as he is offered to us in the gospel. Well, as I say, it's not, it's not the, the only time. We, we, if you believe the word of God to any extent, you have to understand the complete destruction of the world. You don't even have to believe the Bible. All you have to do is believe the real findings of science, not the fake, hopeful findings of certain men who wear lab coats. But anybody who has an eye and a brain can go out into the world and find evidence of the worldwide destruction of this, of this, of this planet, of all the, of the people who lived, save Noah and those with him. And there was a complete destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, what was once a most pleasant and verdant, fruitful valley, utterly destroyed now under the, the salt sea. Yes, as I say, the complete destruction of Jerusalem. You know what really gets me about the destruction of Jerusalem? Is that these people there had far more in in external ties to the living God than you ever did. So if you think that you have some lucky rabbit's foot that connects you to God apart from Christ, apart from faith in Christ, if you have any other little talisman, any other little ritual, any other little covenant that you've made with death, any other false religion that you think is going to save you, Friends, just think about the people in Jerusalem. They thought that. They didn't come in the way that God had given them to come. They had made their own way. And they were utterly destroyed. Rivers of blood came down. And we never did see Santa Claus. Pretty stark, isn't it? Repent. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Kiss the Son before he comes on that final day to do as he's promised to do. This is the lament, you know, of Jesus. It's not so long ago that we looked at it in Luke 13. Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. You see the heart of Christ revealed in this. He wants them to come. He sees the destruction coming upon them and he laments. He weeps for them weeps for them. See, your house is left you desolate, and I, and assuredly I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sinner, unbeliever, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You even have more information than the people of Jerusalem. You've seen it in them. 
Believe the Lord Jesus. Sinner, take warning. And saint, lift up your head. That's the other and obvious and blessed application, my beloved, is that we should lift up our heads. And we, just like I mentioned, I just said, we have more to go on. Jesus is speaking to unrepentant sinners and saying, you, you, judgment is coming upon this city and you ought to repent. You ought to flee. But he's saying also to his own people that, Believe me, redemption is, is eventually coming. Believe me, you will be saved. There will be all kinds of problems, but eventually, lift up your heads, you'll be redeemed. He's saying that to people who hadn't seen his word fulfilled in AD 70. We've seen it. We know this has happened. We have all the more reason to lift up our heads as we've passed this milestone on our way to redemption, on our way to ever blessedness in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you believe that Christ is coming back? I hope you do. Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus for their salvation also knows that he is coming back. And if you believe that, that that should make a difference right now. Jesus intends for it to make a difference to us right now. The great application of all of this is not actually for the end because you don't need it then. Once you see the Christ appearing, that's the... This world will dissolve and the new one is, is there. Its use is for all the generations, all the years and days up until that point in which we live in hopeful anticipation and uncertainty of what is in store for us. And our, our, our heads shouldn't be like this. Yes, they should be in shame of our sin and in prayer to the living God, but no, he says we should lift up our heads Because our redemption draws near. And we should live in that joy and hopeful expectation of redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you give advance notice of the great events of redemptive history. You show us what is going to happen so that you are glorified when these things happen exactly as you say, and also that we might take warning. Those who are outside of Christ might understand that this is no bluff. This is rather a certainty made all the more certain at every stage of history, getting more and more certain with more the weight of the evidence increasing. And Lord, we pray that all those who are yet outside of Christ, who have not yet bowed the knee to him, are yet fearful when they see various things happen in the world, wondering in their own lives at what point they will be brought to judgment. Lord, we pray that they would repent in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And on the other hand, for your people... Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not live another week, another day, another hour in hopelessness or despair, but rather, Lord, in wonderful, joyful expectation and anticipation of the joys that you have set before us, knowing the certainty of these things, knowing that this whole world could fall down, but not not your word. 
Lord, we pray that it would truly make a difference as we meditate on the certainty of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.